Welcome to A Voice from the Hills. I'm James Warner, co-founder of Silicon Hills Wealth Management here in Austin, Texas. And our special guest on today's podcast is Dr. David Rondon. We could spend at least an episode or maybe even two on just his background and what he's accomplished and what he's overcome. But what we really want to focus on is uh, Dr. Roney's journey to financial literacy. He graduated the Naval Academy, a very prestigious university, as a self-proclaimed financial illiterate. And since that time, uh, David's worked uh, to bolster his own literacy. But as he's done that, he's shared those you know, bits and pieces of his journey. He's asked questions out to the community. He's really become a part of that FinTwit community, even though his profession is as a surgeon. Uh, to give you an idea how important uh, David is to the financial world, the SEC has just added him as one of the eight new members to the Investment Advisory Committee. So it's a super high honor, and you know, it's, it's 15 people that really protect the interest of the individual investor, and David is now one of them. So we're very happy to have him on. I'm a little nervous. I'm a little excited. I'm not sure where this is going to go, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be awesome. Uh, so without further ado, please join me in welcoming Dr. David Roney. James Warner is the founding partner of Silicon Hills Wealth Management and the host of A Voice from the Hills podcast. All opinions expressed by James, his co-host, and his guest are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Silicon Hills Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Silicon Hills Wealth Management may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. Hey, good evening, Dr. Roney, and thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Hey, I wanted to start back in 2007 as you're about to graduate from the Naval Academy. Uh, take us back as best you can to that moment and kind of if, if you were flashing back, you know, on the journey that got you to that moment, what, what would that flashback look like for the audience? Man, it's funny. Uh, so I didn't even, I never envisioned going to the Naval Academy. It was never my thing. Um, my mom, I was playing at a basketball camp, but apparently I did pretty well. Came home, I had a letter from Naval Academy, didn't know what the heck it was. And uh, one day I come in, my mom was sick. She had just been in the hospital, came out. She's talking on the phone to someone. I'm like, who the heck are you talking to? And it turns out she was talking to a coach from Naval Academy. He had had her on the phone for like 15, 20 minutes before I started talking to him. I talked to him. My mom apparently had a good rapport with him. He was able to... Uh, talk smarter than my mom and I was like okay cool let me uh let me see what you're talking about and um coach came out for a visit and uh my mom was even there for the visit to be honest I think she was on the phone or something like that but she wasn't around for me to talk to the coach and uh they said hey you know what you got a guaranteed job after um you graduate so I ended up going and then they were right. In 2007, I mean, I graduated and uh, I had guaranteed money, right? Uh, and for me, uh, coming where, where I came from, that was a, a legitimate concern for me is being able to provide for my family. Um, so they got me there. And so I graduated. But like when I graduated Academy, I actually uh, was very depressed, extremely depressed because I didn't really why, know what I that? did. I mean, it didn't mean anything. I didn't have meaning to it, right? Um, 
my basketball career didn't pan out the way I wanted it to. I wasn't even in the, I didn't even have my degree in the major that I originally wanted to. I was originally a chemistry only major, right? And I stopped doing chemistry because of, my basketball coach basically gave me an ultimatum, said you can't play basketball and do chemistry. You got to pick one. And I picked basketball and I chose wrong, right? Um, that's just reality. Like I love chemistry. I always love chemistry. I love science, love engineering. And I chose something that wasn't even going to be there for a long time. And math was kind of easy for me. So that's what I did. But I took the easy way out. And I felt like that afterwards. And I looked at my degree and I was like, I don't even know what this is good for. Like, this wasn't as challenging as it could have been. And I'm not sure I worked that hard. And it was a very fleeting moment for me. And so you, when most people would be celebrating, you were sitting there thinking about, you know, man, did I, did I actually do the right thing here? Did yeah, I, I, I mean, did, I was... I waste time. I was so, um, I was so distraught. I threw my degree in the trash. Like, I was like, I was just completely depressed. Like I got over the hump and for me, I, again, I didn't really know what my why was back then and why I was doing things. Hell, that's still a, a challenge for me to really know why I'm doing something. Um, uh, but I, I got that degree and I, it just, I couldn't feel anything. I didn't, I didn't feel a sense of accomplishment. Right. Um, it wasn't like I struggled to get through the academy academically. I mean, I didn't really study that hard and I was still passing classes. It's supposed to be hard. So from that standpoint, it didn't really feel like it was, I had accomplished something because my mom was still struggling. Right. Um, it wasn't like I had a lot to show for what I had and it just didn't feel like it was just a paper or degree to me. Uh, matter of fact, I think my degree is still in, uh, a box somewhere behind me. That's actually, I think that's my medical school degree right here. <laughs> that's just me. I mean, uh, those things are, they're fleeting, right? I mean, you get over the hump and then you move on. And then you, I think in one of your uh, blog posts on Substack, you talked about the idea that uh, you probably didn't realize it at the time, but here you were graduating from the Naval Academy and you were essentially financially illiterate. Oh, yeah. I mean, I didn't really think about it in that sense back then, right? Because you don't know what you don't know, right? And so, like, for me, uh, graduating, my mom probably thought I was rich, right? Because she had never made that much money. And it wasn't even a lot of money. It was like 42000 a year or something when I was being paid. Um, and But, I, I mean, your worldview gets opened up very quickly. And I remember being a basketball player, and I'm on the – uh, this was at the time, like the Allen Iverson, uh, like everybody's wearing oversized T-shirts and, and baggy sweatpants and things like that. And I remember going into, I think my junior or senior year at the academy, and I was getting on a flight because I was working a basketball camp somewhere. I was coming back to the Naval Academy. And uh, I people were looking at me weird. And I didn't like the way they were looking at me. It was like they were looking at me like I was like beneath them. I was like, nah, this, this can't be it. And I looked in a mirror and I just didn't like what I saw. Uh -huh. And so that was like one of the, the stepping things, like where my eyes started opening up to how people perceived me afterwards. So like when it comes to the financial literacy thing is I didn't really know what that was or the, even the concept of it 
until I talked to a financial quote unquote service customer service person from Primerica and they were just flat out like, man, you don't have enough money to even warrant getting a financial advisor. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I saved all this money. I can see this money here. And I was like, yeah, you don't have enough. You need to do this on your own. And I'm like, man, I'm like, I need help. Like I'm asking for help. I don't know how to do this stuff. And it, that forced me to do it. And I, I hold, I don't want to say I hold a grudge, but I'm very competitive. So basically, I listen to someone tell me I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy enough, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to show you. And so that was really, it, it was almost that slight that kind of... Oh, that, that slight, if, if that slight would have never occurred, I would never be doing what I'm doing today. Yeah, so it's one of those, uh, it's one of those crazy things where it shouldn't have happened, but because it did, you're... I'm here. You are where you are. So, so you got the slight, and you said, well, the hell with this, I'm going to figure this thing out on my own. Yep. I'm, you know, I'm smart enough to do it. Uh, then you start reaching out and just asking questions. And then you get hooked up with people in the financial uh, advisor community on Twitter, right? Is that yeah. Kind of- I mean, so, so 2007 started the financial, like my journey. Right. And I started by reading prospectuses. Right. And that's when I realized like, oh, wow, this stuff is like complicated, not because of the concepts, once you figure out what the jargon is, it's just so jargon heavy that you basically have to cut through it with a knife, right? And so I'm, at the time, I'm either trying to find a dictionary or uh, I'm using a search engine at the time or trying to really look up and figure out like, what are these different concepts and what is this saying? What is that saying? And then like, I was already uh, invested in mutual funds and in a great financial crisis happen and I'm paying attention to that and how real estate prices and I'm listening to other people and I just started slowly but surely opening up my world and so I learned about savings rates I already knew about uh compound interest and then then I had the attorney moment was for me trying to go to medical school and I realized hey you know I can't go out and party all the time and spend all this money because medical school admissions is expensive and I'm like so now I set a financial goal right because And so because of that financial goal, I was motivated to do all these other things. So then that was my next iteration of like learning. Right. So then when you you first started making money, I know when, when this happened with me, you know, when I first uh, started making money, it didn't feel real to me because, you know, in my background, you know, we'd always kind of just, just barely made it. And, and there was this concept of, Hey, when you make it, you're going to pay it back. You're going to, you know, and so a lot of, a lot of what I did when I first graduated was, you know, my excess money, instead of saving it or investing it or whatever, it kind of went back home. Oh, that was and, me and, too. And, and, and did you feel that kind of that? I don't know. It was, whether it was an obligation or, you know, I don't know what it was, but I mean, there was like my, my financial world doesn't actually start yet because I've got something I've, I've got unfinished business. I mean, did you kind of feel that? Oh, I absolutely felt it. I mean, up until my mom died, I, we, man, I was paying, I think, almost $1,000 a month to my mom, right? Between like $200 here, $500 here, like she would just call me and ask for money. And I felt obligated to do it. Now, granted, that was my mom. So, but then like you add in other family members who ask you these things. And I thought this was just a normal thing to do because guess what? I made it. So like, I need to go help other people. 
And then I start to talk to people who didn't look like me. And they're like, man, why are you doing that? Like, why are your parents asking you for money? Like, why is this person asking you for money? And they're like, you need to set some boundaries. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, other people don't do this, right? Because me and my brother are, like, giving money constantly, constantly, constantly. And so when it took me to go to therapy to try to figure out, like, hey, I wasn't responsible for another grown adult and helping them out. Now, if I want to help them out of my own kindness, that's one thing. But I'm not giving them money expecting that to get back. So only give what you can, like, you would give as a gift right? Because these are small gifts. They're uh, other than that, like you aren't giving them a loan, like a thousand dollars at that point. No, it's, life, it's never coming back. Right? It's I mean, never a thousand dollars, never coming back. And I just think about all the money that I spent giving away that all could have been saved or invested. Now, granted, it, did it help my mom? Yeah, it helped her. So like, I'm not upset about that. But yeah, I felt that absolute obligation. I Heck, my own mom didn't even come to my graduation from the Naval Academy because there was an expectation of me to pay for my family members to come out and fly to the Naval Academy for my graduation. I'm a broke college student. How the hell am I supposed to pay for that? Right? Yeah. And so I didn't have my mom there. Well, I remember when I was when I was growing up, there was a the Dallas Times Herald had this uh really prestigious award for uh, high school students in, in the Dallas area. It was the, the newspaper. And uh, David, it was really funny because I'd gone through and I filled out all the paperwork and I'd done all the, the, the legwork. And I, I had no expectation of winning by any stretch of the imagination. I just, I was happy that they invited me to, to come up. And, you know, I get there and it's, it's in the market hall arena uh, my mom didn't feel like she had an outfit that she felt comfortable wearing. So she didn't show up. You know, my grandmother didn't show up. Nobody was there for me. Right. And I didn't understand what it was like to even go to an award ceremony. I'd never been to one. I mean, so literally I'm, I'm walking in with sweats and, uh, you know, sweat bottoms on and sweat tops on and, I'm sitting next to all these people and it, it dawns on me that, you know, Oh, Holy shit. I am really a fish out of water here. Everybody else is, you know, got a suit and tie and a dress and their family's there. And I ended up winning. Oh, wow. And it was the most awesome, horrifying thing uh, I can ever remember because I felt this initial, you know, just sheer gratitude of accomplishment that, you know, here I am amongst 3000 people and somehow I won. I mean, no, you know, no outside influence. I didn't know any senators. I didn't know any congressmen for whatever reason, however it shook out, I won. And, and so I was just shocked, number one, and, and really happy. And then I remember getting on the stage and realizing, you know, there was nobody else there to see it. And, and I think people, when they, when they come from different backgrounds, a lot of, ca- in a lot of, in a lot of cases, it wasn't that my mom did that on purpose to me. I mean, she was a very loving person. Uh, she just didn't get it. She just didn't understand, mm-hmm. you know, and whether you don't understand or whether you're maybe not, maybe you're not healthy enough to even participate 
I know your mom had some, some health issues, you know, throughout your childhood and, and my mom did toward the later, latter portion of my uh, childhood. But I, I think before it was really just when you're, when you're kind of charting that new ground and I, I talk to people all the time, when you're the first person to go to college or you're the, the first person to do something, you can't expect to get that mentorship from the people in your household who have no familiarity with it, you know, and that's, that's one of the hard things about, you know, about overcoming, you know, what circumstances you're born into, right? Because you don't even know what you don't know. Yeah. I, it's a big thing. It's a big thing. And it, it is not about ability and it's not about, I mean, uh, that was the, one of the first things I noticed about you on Twitter is, uh, man, who is this guy? Uh, I was just so impressed because you would just ask whatever question came to your mind. You didn't care what anybody thought, whether they liked it, disliked it, whatever. It was totally authentic. You were like, Hey man, I want to know, I want to know about this. Here's what I think. Am I right or wrong? And man, that's just such a hard thing for most people to do. And, and so in doing that, obviously you got involved with the FinTwit community. Who was the yeah. first person you kind of uh, hooked up with? Um, it's funny. I think the first person probably is Tyler Olson. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. I think originally, I think originally Tyler was trying to pitch me his services because uh, he was just building his practice. And then I told him, I was like, hey, man, you know, actually, uh, I study finance and I'm, I have, because of what happened, I told him my story and was just like, hey, man, you know, I study finance and I don't ever plan on hiring an advisor until I hit a certain amount of net worth because my goal is to create enough net worth to hire like a uh, family office type deal, right? Uh-huh. And uh, He's a he cool guy, though. Super cool guy. And uh, then he sort of was like, yeah, let me introduce you to this person and this person. And then that person uh, who was Jason Wink, and then Jason Wink introduced me to some other people, including Tyrone Ross and then Tyrone Ross. And Jason Wink introduced me to Emlyn, uh, Miles Manley, then Emlyn put me on his podcast. And then I honestly, they just kept telling me just to tell my story. Eventually people would listen. And so I just kept talking. Right. And eventually people started reacting and, to me and uh, I would find people who were, quote unquote, um, who had large followings in finance. And I had to tailor that back based after I started seeing what they post. But like, <laughs> uh, I would just find people and just talk and like conversate. Like, hey, this is what I think. What do you think about this? This is what I read, right? Because the thing that people don't understand is a lot of times the questions that I'm asking are based upon something that I'm reading and it seems like a contradiction and I'm observing and and coming to a conclusion based upon something else that I read before, right? And so I'm trying to figure out like, okay, which scenario is true? Because my brain is forming this connection, but I want to make sure I'm on the right track, right? And so what ends up happening for me after a while, what I've noticed, and a lot of people have texted me this is like, hey man, like how are you coming up with this? Because like, this is stuff that normally people don't figure out for like years down the line. The only reason why I'm 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 speeding up that learning curve is because I read so much, right? So like I spend just as much time as I read for surgery and medicine as I do on finance, right? And so like I, I'm constantly reading, constantly listening, 
And I just sit back and I observe everything and I can remember a lot, right? So like eventually my brain just starts to form all these different connections. And to be honest, man, like I don't really care if someone doesn't like my question. If you don't like it, don't answer it. Right. Yeah. Right. Like I've had some people come after me about that. And like, what are they upset about that? I asked the question. If you're that upset that a person (laughs) is asking a question, how the hell are you a financial advisor or a client facing person? Right. Because you have to have customer service. That's not good customer service. Like you're supposed to be a financial advisor or whoever, investment manager, like you have an, a, educational role that you're supposed to play and you're not playing it right you're lashing out at me for asking a question some people get upset because it's a doctor asking a question well guess what like you guys the financial community has consistently said that doctors are bad at finance and the minute a doctor gets on there and starts to learn finance people get upset yeah that's kind of a contradiction in terms right i mean i I remember when you when you posted that thing about the laundromat I went back and, uh, and, and read through all that stuff. And I was like, man, this guy, I, I got to follow this guy. That was when, yeah. I, that was when I got interested. I was like, but you know, you, so, but you've got to have that. I think you owe it to your clients and your industry to have a curiosity, right? I mean, whether you're a doctor or a financial planner or whatever, if you think you know everything you're ever going to know today and you don't need to learn anything else, I don't want you in my life. I don't want you as my doctor and I don't want you as my financial planner. Right. And if you think there's only a certain subset or subgroup of people you can learn from, I don't want you either. I mean, most of the stuff that I learn uh, today is not from actually most of the stuff uh, that I learn is either inspired or from clients or people that have no financial background whatsoever, but they have that level of curiosity and they, they put two concepts together that our industry normally doesn't allow to be put together in the order they put them together. And it makes you think it's like, well, wait a minute, maybe they're right. Yeah. I mean, for me, like, let's take the laundromat thing for instance, right? I was deployed down in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, and I had time on my hands. And so like, I think about the next five years, the next 10 years, and I'm like, you know, in order to create wealth, I need to have equity which businesses can provide me equity, but low uh, sort of overhead and uh, low sort of involvement with myself. And I just wrote down a list and I went down that list and I explored all of them. Laundromats. I explored like vending machines and this and that and, and real estate car wash. and what, car yeah. washes. Like I literally went through and wrote down the pros and cons and I went through and I learned how to value them. And with this, how to scale them and all this. And I read everything I could. And so I was just like, you know, this is a possibility, right? And I I do that with everything. I go read as much as I can, learn as much as I can. And I start from square one. Okay, what is a laundromat? What is the best type of scenario to put a laundromat in? Or like for me, like I was thinking about urgent cares, right? Like I went and learned the urgent care business for a long time ago. I was like, well... These are the the dynamics of an urgent care. What locations do you want? Things like that. And that's just how I operate, right? But people, they they assume that in any room they walk in that they're the smartest. I don't. I always assume I'm not the smartest person in the room. So I ask questions. Hey, what do you think about this? Okay, cool. 
take that mental note and then I, I file that so that I can be able to correspond that with something else that I read. And you talk about the impact that uh, of, I guess, poverty created trauma, I guess is, is probably mm-hmm. the way I would uh, talk about it in your, in your work at least. And that, that financial independence for, for people that have had that kind of trauma is, is really about control and security and safety. I mean, there's a, there's this concept and we've seen it a lot in all forms of literacy, right? Where if there's a literacy deficit, a lot of times there's some kind of trauma associated with it, right? Uh, how do you get past the, the trauma component to deal with the literacy component or how do you, you talked about therapy, I think, uh, just briefly earlier. How do you, how do you get past that to really, you know, fundamentally start improving your own financial literacy or, or whether it's financial literacy or just literacy in general, right? I mean, how do you, how do you make that, uh, that transition? Well, I mean, so think about this, like they talk about, there's a common thing, um, that talks about in the financial industry, people usually find a financial advisor when uh, a life event happens, a major change happens, right? I mean, the same thing, right? So poverty creates this mindset that money is scarce. So you had to either hoard the money as much as you can because there's a chance that you're never going to be able to get it back if it goes away, right? Or it's like, hey, you're just loose with it. Like, okay, I, I, I'm never going to improve this situation. So I might as well live my life and you never prepare it for the future. There's never really this in between, unless you're dealing with the situation where you're, you're the people you are going through it with are able to teach you some of the financial concepts. If you're learning about money in a reactionary and defensive posture, because you're constantly trying to defend the way you live your life and surviving each day, then that's how you're going to have, that's the type of mindset you're going to have. And it takes, it takes a lot to break that, right? The thing that broke that for me was that, that turning point when the guy basically said I wasn't worth enough and I didn't, I wasn't important enough. And I'm like, well, damn, like everybody's telling me I graduated from the Naval Academy. That's supposed to be elite. I got this applied mathematics degree. That's supposed to be elite. And here's this guy telling me that, no way in hell can I afford a financial advisor. And I'm like, you know what? I've been proving people wrong my whole life. I'm going to prove you fucking wrong too. Like, what yeah. else do you want me to say? Like, and so those are the types of things that, like, you need some type of motivating factor, right, to get past that problem. Another thing that helped me was when my kids were born, I realized, like, man, you know, I'm doing okay, but like, I really got to step on the gas, right? Because the, the, uh, me and my wife, we already had a kid. And then, uh, when my son was being born, when I found out he was, um, we were pregnant with him, I went in the car and I cried because I'm like, man, how the hell am I going to afford this? I was a resident. Uh, my wife's pregnant now. She might have to go out. I'm like, I'm not making any money. How the hell can I afford a kid? And my brothers just was like, man, you know, God will make a way. Not only that, it was like, man, you have never let anything stop you and you will make a way. And so I just got very focused again. was like, okay, cool. Let me get back to how I, I normally do. I got over my emotions and I came up with a plan. 
And then I enacted that plan. And then I changed a little bit as I went to make sure that everything got better. But I'm like, look, just take it one day at a time. Get through this day. Get through that next day. Have your plan. Keep working at your plan. Work at your plan. Work at your plan. And it worked out for me. Now, did I always make great decisions? Hell no. Right? But it always worked out because in the grand scheme of things, I, 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 it was always a risk versus benefit. Right? So, like, I dipped into my Roth IRA as a med student to pay for my mom's funeral. I think that's a worthy cause, right? Sure. I didn't, she didn't have uh, life insurance. That's why I tell people you got to have life insurance. So me and my brother pay for her funeral and I pulled money out of my Roth IRA to do it. Fine. That I, I, if I had to do that again, 100% will do it again. Okay. The next thing that was questionable, right? Is, the amount of credit card debt I had in residency. Well, what else do you expect a resident to do when you are getting paid pennies and you have to go to a residency in a high cost of living area like Chicago, right? When your own money that you're being paid doesn't even cover your rent each month and your parking because you got to pay for parking in the city of Chicago, right? Unless you want to live somewhere that isn't safe. And so you have to think about those things, right? And so in the grand scheme of things, on in the grand totality, right, I'm a surgeon, right? So that's just, unfortunately, that's a little pain up front for maximum gain later. I got great training. Did it suck having to go through that time? Absolutely. But those are, these are the things, right? You have to just keep the bigger picture and not get lost in the small details of what things are going to go. But like, it takes literally years to get through and I'm still getting through my uh, my issues with poverty right there are times that I get anxious and I wake up in the middle of the night and my heart's beating fast because I'm thinking about something that's coming up a bill or something like that and I'm like man why am I even thinking about that I'm a certain well, I noticed I can even, just even in the last week when you were uh, on Twitter about the you know just responding to the paycheck to paycheck uh yeah uh thing and I thought you had some some really interesting things to say about it and I thought you know it is very different from person to person right I mean living paycheck to paycheck means very very different things to different people in different circumstances and the you know the idea from my childhood at least was that there was never anything stable about money Mm -hmm. money wasn't a stable thing money was the money was instable. So it's like you said, you know, you would either hoard it or you would spend it, you know, just, you know, kind of crazy. I remember one time we had uh, furniture on layaway and my, my grandmother had been going and paying $10 a, a week. I would always go down there with her and we'd pay $10 a week on the furniture. And it took us forever, of course, to actually pay off the layaway. And when we finally did, the guy who owned the furniture owned up to my grandmother and said, Hey, you know, I already sold the furniture, but the stuff you had on layaway is not here anymore. And so he starts, you know, you know, getting some different furniture and, you know, they had a really interesting relationship between the two of them. Um, but so finally he comes up with, a, you know, with something that was agreeable with my grandmother. There's a lot of profanity going on, but at the end of the day, she's like, okay, well, I'm going to go to the bank and get the money and I'll come back and, you know, pay, make the final payment and pick up the furniture. 
well, we're on the way out and we pick up my mom and my mom was kind of, you know, she worked constantly. I mean, she probably worked 16, 18 hour days, a, a lot of days. Uh, and so she provided kind of all the financial, you know, engine that we had. Right. And so if she had an opinion on something, it was, it was taken pretty seriously, but my mom occasionally would just do something that was just, you know, kind of nutty in retrospect. And I remember she looked over at my grandmother and said, do you really like that furniture? And uh, she said, no, not, not really, not particularly. I like the furniture that I thought we were going to get, but you know, they don't have that anymore. And she goes, well, why don't we all go to Six Flags? And so we took that money and the next day, the, every, every member of our family went to Six Flags and we had an awesome day. I mean, it was, you know, I'm, I was a little kid at the time. But I remember sitting in the back of the car, and even as like an eight or nine year old kid, I realized, you know, this probably isn't a good financial decision, right? But I was, you know, wanting to go to Six Flags. And so, you know, the next day we did it. And and then I remember, you know, it was just a great time. And then we felt like we were on top of the world for a day or two. And then the depression hit a couple days later, like, what did we do? You know, we just. Mm -hmm. We just spent all the furniture money on on Six Flags, right? Which is something that a family who's grown up in financial stability with 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 money as being a stabling factor would never do, right? Even if the the furniture was pulled out from under them, they'd just go get furniture at a different place. They wouldn't change. They wouldn't just on a whim change how money is spent. It is yeah. spent, right? And, and so I think that that's a huge thing. And I always kind of keep an eye out for that, for people who are, you know, first generation wealth or, uh, you know, just to make sure that they understand that, you know, you can do some really nutty things when you don't have the idea that money is stable or that money is a stability factor. It's, it's, it's there today, gone tomorrow. And, you know, you know, maybe I'll get lucky, but I'll probably just not, you know, have any at the end of the day. And so I think that's one of the things that really makes financial literacy hard because we do things that don't necessarily make sense unless you know our background, unless you know, you know, how we were raised mm -hmm. and everything else. And that's when I, when I read your work, I think it's so beneficial because I think there are a lot of people that are maybe in your situation where they grew up in, you know, in one, uh, you know, one economic standard, right. One economic reality. And, and because of, you know, good fortune, hard work, God given ability, whatever, now they have the ability to, to move into a different reality. Right. So your kids probably won't have the same views about money as you did. Right. Because you're going to, you're going to take your views, what you've learned and everything else, and you're going to instill that in them. And so they'll actually have a leg up even before they get started. And I, and I think that's one thing that we don't necessarily understand. And when you talked about in your, your post about financial literacy, uh, you talked about utilizing problem-based learning. And I thought that was so smart um, because I don't know that anybody is ever as interested in anything as they are when they realize it's a problem. Yeah, I mean, people naturally are gravi going to gravitate toward things that interest them, right? If 
Susan has a car that she is like breaking down. She knows she needs to get rid of it. And she needs it for reliable transportation to her job to make money. Well, she has to have a plan in order to get a new car, but she doesn't know how to save for that because she does also doesn't know how to search for the car because this car was a hand-me-down. She's never bought her car on her own. There's a lot of opportunity to teach about financial literacy concepts, right? How to obtain a loan, how to save for, uh, for a purchase in the future. What is a good interest rate? What are the amortization schedule? What should uh, the car uh, buying versus lease debate? Like there's a lot of things you can teach. Translate that into a buying a home. Translate that to how to pay for a wedding. Translate that to how to uh, pay for a kid's college, how to save for college, how to plan for the long term. Hey, I want to go on this vacation next year. How do I pay for it? These are, there's a, those are, that's how people live, right? They don't live right. off of a, oh, well, here's compound interest and here's the rate and the rule of 72. Those are all great math concepts, but normal people don't talk like that. They go, hey, guess what, James? I need to, I'm thinking about in six months uh, adding a deck to my back porch. I'm just trying to figure out how I'm going to pay for it. Exactly. Right? Okay, cool. I know how you can do that. Have you thought about making a plan and actually figuring out how much you need to save? And since this is short term, have you thought about putting this in a more liquid vehicle? I wouldn't put this in anything risky. What do you mean by liquid? Oh, you know, here's what liquidity means. Here's what how the, it means being able to access your cash pretty easily. Here's some things that can help. Oh, cool. That's what I think. I, I actually like that plan. Oh, Maybe I can actually the loan rates are better uh, with my own 401k versus getting a HELOC. I'm going to use my own 401k so I can pay myself back. But you see all these concepts that you can learn all from asking a simple question. Yeah, right? but I, I think I think unless unless your mind understands what the problem is, it's really hard to develop that knowledge tree, right? Because otherwise. Otherwise, they're just concepts that are just, they don't really attach to anything, right? Uh, once they start attaching to something and they become part of a solution, then the education or the potential education is there, right? Because mm -hmm. now, okay, I really want to know, you know, what is is saving from my, is borrowing from my 401k better than, than taking out a private loan or selling some of the assets I have and paying capital gains and Oh, well now, wait a minute, what's capital gains tax? And, you know, is that, you know, what kind of percentage rate is that versus the, the rate that I might pay? And if I'm paying money back to myself, is that a good thing? Or is that an opportunity cost where I'm not having money in, in the market because I've taken this loan against my 401k and what does that look like? And so you open up all those things, but you only open up those things when you have a problem that somebody's interested in solving. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that is just so, such great advice. I mean, if anybody ever, uh, it's the Surgify Substack. If you ever go on, you know, look at that financial literacy list. There's another thing that I think is just crucial that you talk about, and it's called teaching the teachers, right? And, and you talk about how, hey, 57% of people are financially illiterate or illiterate, so it makes sense that, Hey, maybe some of teachers fall into that 
category, right? And if our teachers don't have financial literacy uh, in their own lives, you know, how are they going to, you know, how are they going to be the conduit for that for, you know, the next generation? Uh, and I think that's a, that's a huge thing. I don't know how that happens. Uh, the problem-based learning, I can, I, I've even used that in practice uh, since I read it from you to try to help our clients visualize what the problem is so that, you know, we can turn that problem into a decision tree and it really makes, uh, but I, but I do think the the teaching the teachers is important too. Do you have any ideas or well, I mean, thoughts so on how to? Let's think about this, right? Teachers, uh, the average school day is roughly eight hours, right? So let's let's say that. Let's say the teachers are with maximum six hours, right? We they've already proven the concept that you can teach kids how to code by doing an hour a day of code in school, right? We know that, okay? Right, the whole. Uh, coding, uh, our code initiative that they did across schools. So we know that concept works. The other thing is teachers spend more time with our kids than we do sometimes because, hey, guess what? Dad and mom gets home at 5, 6 p.m. The kids get home earlier than that, and they're at the after-school programs. And then you get some dinner, and then you're going to sleep, and then you're back at it again, Right. So during that time frame, there's very minimal opportunity for parents to teach their kids like, hey, this is what this is and this is what it is, this is. But if you can educate teachers to learn how to be financially savvy, right, they can spend 15 minutes during their math class or during their English class where they're doing word problems and teach financial concepts. Right. It doesn't have to be Johnny ate six apples and he had 12 in the bag to start with. It could be, hey, Johnny had something he wants to buy with six for six dollars and he has twelve dollars. How much is he spending? Like learning that there's ways to reframe and reshape how we do things. Right. What if every teacher in this country was a certified, right? Because a certified financial planner, they don't, they're not practicing or a certified financial educator. What if that was a thing? Do you think, do you not, we trust our teachers to teach calculus, algebra, geometry, physics, chemistry, but we can't teach, we can't trust them to teach math, like financial concepts? That's hard for me to believe. Right. We can teach one concept a week over an hour. And I guarantee you kids will be interested. If you tell them, if if you just start with the compound interest and put it in a way where they're like, hey, you're a 16 today. I want you to take ten dollars a month. However, you're going to do it. And all you're going to do is put up ten dollars a month and you're going to put it in an index fund for the next 20 years and have them figure out how much money they're going to have in 20 years, $10 a month. I guarantee you, you'll get them interested in what they're trying to accomplish. And you talked about uh, beyond that, uh, beyond the concept of just the semantics of it. But uh, I think you talked about in another post about, you know, let yourself 
you know, feel your emotions and figure out why you're having them. I think that was one of your, your 10 lessons in life. And, and I think that's such a, I think because financial and investment decisions can be so emotional that it's important for us to understand the emotions and, you know, figuring out why we're having them get that behavioral concept, you know, embedded in our decisions because they tend to be emotional when you uh, it's, it's hard to just break them down to a spreadsheet or it's hard to break them down just to a calculation. Uh, And so how do you think that, let's talk about it in terms of your daughter and your son, right? How, how would you impart the emotional concepts of making the right decision and actually learning to live with decisions that you made that weren't right and, and move on from them. Right. Cause we don't always make the, you know, the perfect decision. How, how do you dovetail that? Let yourself feel the emotion and figure out why you're having them. Well, why that educational process? You don't. So like, as a parent, I and we all do it, right? Like the natural reaction when a kid is crying is to tell them to stop crying, right? Well, one hundred percent, right? Because we don't, we don't. Nobody likes to. It's it's uncomfortable to hear somebody cry, but the body is telling them they need to cry to get that that emotion out. But once they've stopped crying, so one, that's one thing, right? If you're gonna try and physically make yourself stop crying. Where your body needs to to do that. That's its natural reaction. So let that happen. Once you've done that and gotten that sort of acute emotion out, take a deep breath and then figure out why am I crying to start with? Is it actually that bad? Or is it something that you can just move on from, right? And so for my kids, I let them cry. And then I'll ask them to take a deep breath after they've gotten that initial thing out. And I ask them, what is really going on? Are you upset or are you just frustrated? And I help them make the rational decisions and come to that conclusion on their own. And the reason why I do that is because if I give people answers, like, James, if you gave me the answer to every test question and we're in class together, what did I actually learn? Nothing. Nothing. You learned the information because you can give me the answer, but my brain never formed a connection. So what I try and do is allow my kids to feel their emotions, and then I talk through it with them because it's something that I wasn't afforded the opportunity to, and so I bottled up all my emotions for a long time, and then now I let myself feel that anxiety. The thing about anxiety and crying and all this sadness These are things you are naturally, your body's naturally supposed to do. Your mind is naturally react, like built to do. That's the whole reason why they exist, right? It's to protect you from things that may be hurtful or scary. It's when it becomes out of proportion to normal where it's pathologic, right? So if you just have uncontrollable crying and you can't stop, that's pathologic, right? But if it's like, okay, I just need to get that out, right? Have you ever just like, you're so mad that you just need to punch something or just like scream? Yeah, because that's the only way you can even reset. That's the only way you can reset, right? And then once you get that emotion out, you're clear again. But if you try and fight that, your brain gets stuck. 
And so I don't want my kids learning to get stuck, right? And so you just become an emotional powder keg. And when it comes to financial decisions, a lot of stuff that we do is driven off of what we can get in our reward system, that dopamine hit, right? The whole day trading concept that people akin to sports gambling or to gambling in Vegas. Like, I can go, I love playing roulette. Absolutely love it. But like, when you're in the moment, you're not thinking clearly because you're just trying to get that next dopamine hit. Sure. But then days later, you're like, oh my God, I can't believe I spent so much money. Right? <laughs> and so you have to be okay with that and you have to figure that out. Right? And so you have to work within the framework of how your body can understand. So for my kids, I teach them, go ahead and have that emotion. Now, are there times I'll tell them, yeah, stop crying? Yeah, absolutely, because I think they're being irrational. And I'll tell them, like, hey, I think you're being irrational. Can you take a deep breath? But I want them to learn how to feel those emotions because we tell too many people that they can't be emotional and they can't be human. And that's not okay with me. And then you had uh, uh, talked about, uh, I think we share, a, almost share the same date, uh, so, so my mom passed away, uh, August 9th. Yep. Uh, I think yours passed away August, August 14th. Yep. Five days uh, after that. Yeah. And so, uh, that was probably one of the, I, I guess almost my life started over when that happened, uh, to be honest, uh, because my, my mom was always kind of the center of the, the family. She was always kind of the thing that held everything together. And, you know, if my mom said, this is how it's going to go, she was just very persuasive and, and everybody just kind of followed her lead. Uh, and when she passed away, there was just that, you know, that lead was gone. And, you know, I, I realized it was very hard for me to figure out where my place in the world was when I lost her. And, not because I was supporting her or anything like that. I mean, it, it was, it was just a different, a very different mindset uh, for me. And I wonder when your mom passed away, what, what went through your mind? What, what emotions did you have when, uh, cause I know that was a painful time for you as well, right? Yeah. I lost my purpose. I completely lost my purpose. Didn't know why I was doing anything. Didn't know why I was here. I no longer, even knew why I was living. And it was tough for me, still tough for me. Um, my wife and my kids, they keep me grounded and keep me focused. And I, I push towards things that help me to stay with the North Star, right? But like everything I had done up until that moment was to get acknowledgement from my mom and to help my mom and take care of my mom because that was the promise that I gave my grandmother. And I failed. I just flat out failed, right? And everything I had done lost its meaning. Um, honestly, I didn't even know if I would want to live at that point because I literally lost my meaning. I lost the reason that was keeping me geared towards living, right? I kept pushing because I had to take care of my mom. I had to take care of my brother. But at that point, my brother was doing great, and then I lost my mom and lost who I was. And so it took a while for me to, to even start to understand 
why I was doing anything, why I wanted to do this, why I want to be this and why I want to be that, why I need to get to the next step because I, I lost her. Yeah. And I think there's a, I mean, that that's just one of those fundamental reset points that we can all, you know, that we can all fall into, whether it's loss of a loss of a loved one, maybe loss of a job that was just maybe more important to us than it probably should have been, uh, you know, a, a business, a close friend or something like that. We can all run through our lives, especially from a financial perspective and say, you know, Hey, this is why I'm doing this. Uh, this is the obligation I created for myself. This is not necessarily even a plan. This is just a responsibility that, uh, that I've created and a routine that I've created to, uh, satisfy that responsibility. And then when that goes away and that's not there, you know, it's, uh, it's fundamental reset time. And you're like, well, damn, what am I doing? You know, why, why am I doing the work that I'm doing? Why am I saving? What am I saving money for? What am I, you know? And, and I think we as financial advisors and, and just people in general have to understand that you're going to have probably three, four, five of those times in your life, maybe. Uh, hopefully not if you're, if you're lucky, but you're going to have those times. And each one of those times, you, you talked about a transition you know, point where, you know, financial, uh, stuff becomes, uh, really important. And, and really in, in the grand scheme of things, uh, most of the things we do as financial advisors aren't, uh, all that difficult. Uh, they aren't all that technical. Uh, they don't require a, a specific, you know, high level of brain power. Uh, what they do require is just general knowledge, a little bit of humility and, and empathy toward the people you're working with. Uh, because if you don't, if you approach every situation as if it's the same and every situation as if there's this lockstep one, two, three, four, you know, steps on how we do it, uh, you kind of miss the boat. You miss being able to help people through what could be a really, really difficult time for them. And you miss helping them be able to realign with who they are. And so, you know, I'm sure your wife and children and, and some of the things you've done career wise and everything like that helped you uh, do that. And, and there's still some work to be done, obviously. Right. But uh where you sit today, you know, as a, you're an accomplished surgeon. I mean, you were just, you were just named to the SEC investment advisory committee. Yeah. That's pretty uh, cool, two right? days ago. That's, yeah. that is really cool, dude. There's, there's two people on this podcast and only one of them's on that committee. And it ain't me. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty cool. So, congratulations. Man. How'd Thanks. that happen? Um, you know, um, just by chance. Uh, I mean, how did they get it so right? I don't know, man. I, you know, I, I, um, I had been, I just kept talking and eventually somebody, uh, uh, and secretary, I'm sorry, uh, commissioner purse, um, Hester purse started following me on Twitter. I was like, Oh my God, like I gotta be careful now. Like, right. <laughs> and then, uh, I, I responded to something that this sec had, put out there and I, cause I read everything. Right. So 
I started following her and I noticed that she would put out like these press releases and they asked the question on there and I gave some critical feedback and um, I thought it was a canned response originally and it said, okay, you know, um, this was like, if we'd like to hear more, please send us an email. And so I sent the email like, hey, my name is such and such. This is what I think. I'm willing to help out in any way, uh, shape or form, but this is how I would fix it. And then next, you know, I'm on an introductory call and then I talked to some other people. And then a year later, I get an email saying, hey, you know, we have these positions on the investor uh, advisory committee. We can't guarantee anything. But if you put your application in, you get the interview. Um, so I put an application in, literally didn't hear anything, interviewed. And then somehow I made it onto the committee. Um, it was a lot of people who applied and somehow I snuck in the back door and made it in. Uh, it's, it's weird for me, right? Cause it kind of generates some imposter syndrome for me, right? Cause like I, everything about finance for me is self-taught and me mm -hmm. asking questions to very, very smart people. And so well, now I, you, this committee has a lot of accomplished financial professionals. on. Yeah. Well, I, I, I don't even know that, uh, imposter syndrome is is necessarily a bad thing i mean i think i think the committee chose very very well this this definitely this definitely improves my outlook on the, <laughs> on the sec and the whole operation because you're the perfect person to have uh you know on something like that because you know you can have all the accomplished people you want but if they all come from the same background and they all come with the same life experiences and uh and things like that you, you end up getting this you know, homogeneous, you know, bro agreement that everybody has, you know, because they, they see life through the same lens. I mean, uh, I think you'll definitely shake it up for them and, uh, and so, you'll probably end up with a lot better committee because you're on it. Well, so. the, so the, the thing about me is, um, like you said earlier, I'm not afraid to ask questions, right? Because from my standpoint is let's just be honest, right? I mean, there's not many people from the neighborhoods that I grew up in make it to the neighborhood. So that's the first thing. There's not many people from the neighborhoods that I grew up in that go on to like in the entire country that go on to play division one basketball and run uh, division one track. I did that. There's not many people who uh, came from the background I came from go on to become a cryptologist. I did that. And so like, I've always done like I, none of this was, determine like guarantee for me right like i'm an anomaly right and so like what do i have to lose by asking a question i wasn't supposed to be here in the first place right so like i might as well take the opportunity to ask the question because i want to know and when i say that i put the work in do you see all these books behind me uh the top Three rows are all financial books and i have more that are piled up right here that i have consume like i buy books and i read them all the time like i'm not playing in the financial realm i legitimately want to know all of this stuff because financial advice is not affordable and the thing that i haven't forgotten is that how i felt 10 years ago right when i couldn't get any financial help any financial advice other than uh, the occasional Northwestern Mutual Association uh, person trying to sell me some damn life insurance, <laughs> right? 
like the, but this this is what I'm talking about, right? Like I, maybe it's me and uh, maybe I should forget all the I, I can't forget because there are people that I know that still struggle, right? And so like it's hard for me to forget that. I can't. My brain will not literally let me forget. And the thing is, is like, what kind of legacy would I be, what my mom had left if I forgot everything that we went through and just acted like it never happened? Yeah. Because there's a lot of people that would probably want me to just be like, well, you're a doctor, you made it, just shut up and take the money, right? But that's not, who did that, who did I really help, right? Like, I became a surgeon to help other people. For me, with the finance stuff, I'm doing the same thing. I'm just helping other people. Because now I have access to, to networks and, um, and opportunities that other people, when I was in a different situation, wouldn't have gotten access to. So I just, it's like sharing your plate. Hey, you got in through into the buffet, like grab as much as you can and take it out to the rest of your family. Like that's all I'm trying to do is share right. financial knowledge that I've learned, right? That I've gathered, that I've learned from buying the books that I can afford to buy. Because I have extra money that I can, I, so I'm just trying to learn it and then distill it in a non-jargon way, like a completely jargon-free. Because jargon is a huge impediment to anyone learning anything. It's very intimidating when someone starts to come up to you and talk jargon. It happens all the time on Twitter, right? It happens so much on Twitter that I started reading volatility primers because I'm so tired of people talking about. <laughs> ball and the VIX and this and I'm like okay you know what I'm just gonna learn this so I can get get through this jargon because they you sometimes they do it in such a way that you cannot even understand what's going on in the conversation and you can't even talk to them and and then when you when you do actually you know peel it all back and understand it you're like seriously oh that's happened to me a few times you you couldn't have said it any simpler than that i mean you know it's like and i've caught people out on it and i'm just like it's not that it wasn't that complicated you made it complicated with this jargon yeah well i think uh i've kept you long enough david i could probably i could probably go on with you quite a quite a bit longer but i appreciate your time very much i know your schedule's really tight and uh I know we didn't go over your uh, your personal background as much because I wanted to kind of hit, you know, some of the areas that I think, uh, you know, that that next generation might really help. I hope that they uh, they link up with you on uh, Twitter. I hope they read your Substack because I think you have a really uh, you have some really important things to say, and you're in a really good place to be able to say that. Uh, I think you you're a great. Uh, you know, kind of stepping stone for everybody who's, you know, wanting to ask their own questions and wanting to kind of, you know, you know, just bolster their own financial literacy. So thanks for joining us. I mean, obviously your, your story is pretty awesome. I mean, you're in the top one half of one half of one half of one half of 1%. <laughs> I appreciate to, that. Uh, to be where you are. And I, I, I think we gave a little bit of short shrift to that because of just, I'm not sure everybody would even believe how amazing your actual story is once they dig into it, but uh, really appreciate what you do. I appreciate you spending some time with us and I wish you and your family the best of luck. I appreciate you, James. Thanks so much. The last thing I want to say is if you're a financial advisor, I'm just going to leave this. You want a client who you can grow with, right? 
the best time to have gotten me as a client was when I was 23 years old and full of like, like you have to look past the surface and go, you know what? This kid might be going places. Let me grow with him, right? I may not have been making money then, but at some point I was going to make some money. And you could have taken me and molded me and, and kept me in the right direction. And along the way, your business would have grown with mine because now you're part of my family. I'm going to recommend you to all my friends. And then that relationship grew. So like, yeah, I may not be able to give you a lot up front, but like I could have used services along the way. And instead I had to do the hard knock life, right? And so the more educated a client is up front, yeah, is it scary to have an educated client? Probably, but it's going to be a more rewarding scenario because now you know they're educated and they're choosing you for a reason. So that validates your skill set. Yeah, and as they get educated on a concept, that opens it up to the next concept, right? Yes. I mean, it's very easy to tell somebody what to do, and they, but, and even if they don't understand it, if they agree with it, to just go with it, right? But if you take that extra step and make sure that they understand what the rationale behind what you're doing is, make make sure that they're actually educated. It, it's not just. We, our, our business is so much about selling and that is so stupid. Uh, we don't need to sell, you know, we need to educate and we need to motivate. Mm -hmm. right? And when, you know, what we're doing is we're telling these young, very bright people that you're not rich enough. You're not experienced enough. You're not important enough. You don't matter. Come back to us when you matter. And the reality is what happens is we lose people like you because in that 10 year period where you read all three of those shelves full of books and you did it mostly yourself and you're walking away with still that memory of somebody telling you, you're not good enough. You're not ready. You're not worthy. Right. Uh, why in the world would our industry think that these people would come back? You know, if if you've been turned away at 23 or 24 or 25, why would you come back to an industry that turned you away after you had become successful, mm -hmm. after you had gone through all those things? And I, you know, I, I just don't really understand the, uh, the idea behind that, because not only does it not only does it hurt the industry as a whole, but I mean, there's a whole group of, you know, younger advisors with, you know, talented, you know, you know, just talented backgrounds and everything else that could, you know, work with these people. And that's what's happening, right? We're, we're seeing like the Tyler Olson's of the world and, and some of these younger advisors come in and they're not saying no, they're saying yes to these, you know, younger people and then we look around five years later and we think well why are they so successful well guess what you know they're doing exactly what you said to do and they're doing exactly what our industry sometimes uh tells us the best practice is to you know make your you know make your business more exclusive make you know make these fundamental judgments on people based on their assets or based on their income or 
you know, based on all these things and forget everything else. And then, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think we are turning a corner. I just think most of the people that I uh, interact with at least, and that's, it's a small sample size, but I mean, most of the people that I interact with, I think have more of an open mind toward it. And, you know, they're looking at more holistically who they're dealing with and not just the numbers. Uh, but it's a, it's a thing in our industry that's dying a very slow death. Uh, and so I, I hope that people like you and your story and what you're doing uh, uh, help, uh, help kill that, that notion a little bit sooner. I hope so too. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Thank you, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate uh, it. Great to meet you in person. Yes, sir. And that's going to do it for our podcast today with Dr. David Roney. I hope you enjoyed the uh, discussion on financial literacy. Uh, I hope you found the the story of uh, Dr. Roney to be motivating and, and inspiring and something you could share with others. Um, it's it's really a, a cool story, and I love what uh, David's doing for the concept of financial literacy. If you'd like to follow him, uh, you can do it at FI Surge on Twitter. That's his Twitter handle. Uh, and also, uh, Surgeify is his uh, is his Substack handle for all of his uh, uh, written content. Uh, much of it on uh, you know aspects of financial literacy, but it's all over the place. Uh, and he's very active on social media, so never never lacks for an opinion. And if you'd like to just engage directly with him, it, it'll be pretty easy once uh, uh, once you link up with him. So we uh, really appreciate Dr. David being here with us today. Uh, I really appreciate you listening. Uh, remember, you can subscribe to us. You can rate, review. We hope you do all these things on any of the major platforms, whether it's uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or or wherever you prefer to consume your podcast content. Because, you know, at the end of the day, we can only do our best work when you are here to listen. So thank you. Thank you.